Welcome to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright. In these podcasts, I've been sharing talks I've given over the years, mostly at Unitarian Universalist churches throughout Southwest Ohio. The talk today is entitled, Of All That Human Hearts Endure, Reflections on Resiliency. It was originally shared in August 2004 at St. John's Unitarian Church in Cincinnati. And you might remember, election season was well underway. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. The reading today was adapted from Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The meaning of our existence is not invented by ourselves, but rather detected. I look for the meaning. I choose whether to face the sun or the shadow. It does not really matter what we expect from life, but rather what life expects from us. We need to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who are being questioned by life daily and hourly. I can give an answer. I choose whether to face the sun or the shadow. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets before each individual. Whatever life I have, it is my life. I choose whether to face the sun or the shadow. Each one of us is questioned by life, and we can only answer to life by answering for our own life. To life we can only respond by being responsible. I choose whether to face the sun or the shadow. So I was wondering if any of you have noticed that there's an election going on. This election year, it's a little bit like Walmart in September. You know how it seems like every year the Christmas items make their way to the shelves earlier and earlier. Well, we were ushered into this election season far sooner than in previous election years. I've learned over time to pay more attention to this, partly because I've paid more attention to the roots of my faith tradition. Unitarian Universalism is a unique religion for many reasons, and one of those reasons is that our own principles and purposes, the closest thing we have to dogma, espouse democracy. One of the principles which, as Unitarians, we covenant to affirm and promote is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. So I made time this week to pay some attention to the Democratic National Convention, just as I plan to make time to listen to the speeches of the Republican National Convention. As I gather in pieces of these political events and the media coverage of these events, there are a lot of themes that emerge, but one struck me as particularly powerful, the dichotomy some people perceive between having this entity we call government take care of people's needs or having a system where each person or family takes care of itself. 
I find it so intriguing that there seems to be a perception among some people that this situation is either one way or the other, depending on our country's administration. And I thought about the quote from the English writer Samuel Johnson, from which I took the title of my talk today. How small of all that human hearts endure, that part which laws or kings can cause or cure. I'm a social worker working in a community mental health agency, mostly with adults who have severe mental illness. And recently there's been a lot of literature coming out about the idea of resiliency and the role it plays in mental illnesses and recovery. Resiliency is a seductive topic in a culture where so much feels out of control. One high school student who had just gone through a semester of resiliency training defined resiliency as bouncing back from problems and stuff with more power and more smarts. We all experience problems and stuff, and we know just from looking around us that different people seem to emerge from difficulties in different ways. One person might experience the death of a teenage son in a traffic accident and begin a spiral downward into isolation, illness, and constant pain, while another might experience the death of a teenage son in a traffic accident and emerge as the founder and leader of the local chapter of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. The idea of focusing on resiliency is that maybe somehow we can cultivate that quality in ourselves and in others. So then when we are faced with challenges, we respond in a more positive way and experience that challenge differently and less painfully. Our CEO at work came across some of the work on resiliency as it relates to the workforce. One of the articles was entitled, The Myth of Workplace Stress. A resiliency expert would tell you, it's not about the stress. It's about the way people respond to the stress. And I found myself both intrigued and suspicious. The long and the short of it is I found myself on the fence about resiliency. I'm hungry to know more about how I can become more resilient and about how I can help my coworkers and our clients and even my loved ones develop their resiliency. But at the same time, there's a part of me saying, wait a minute, the personal is political. An individual's suffering is often connected to the system within which they live. Sometimes laws and kings do cause and cure suffering. Let me share with you some of the information I'm finding about resiliency. Al Siebert, the author of The Survivor Personality, described it this way. Highly resilient people know how to bounce back and find a way to have things turn out well. They thrive in constant change because they are flexible, agile, creative, adapt quickly, synergistic, and learn from experience. They handle major difficulties better than most people because they know how to gain strength from adversity. When hit by major setbacks, they don't complain about life being unfair. Like cats, they usually manage to land on their feet and often end up stronger and better than before. Do you know people who match that description? I do, but not everyone does. When I worked as a guest speaker in high schools throughout the region, I would sometimes have young people ask me, 
but how do you know what to do with your life? And I would say, well, that's for you to answer. But one way to begin is to look around you. Look for the people who seem happy overall, who seem excited and interested in their lives, and then ask them what they do and how they do it. And more than once, I had teenagers say to me, I don't know anybody like that. It was at that point in my life when I became determined to be that kind of role model. And when I had my own children, that determination increased. And it was clear to me that I wasn't just committing to this out of a concern for how I looked to other people. It was simply the first time I had really listened to life. The first time that I realized the meaning of life wasn't a question I could ask. Like Viktor Frankl said, it was a question life was asking me. Now, I come to that question, like many of us, having enjoyed a lot of advantages. I grew up safe, healthy, white, well-fed, in a family that valued my opinion and supported my education. I grew up being told that my life was my own, my spirituality was my own, that my vocation and my religion should be of my own choosing. But I know my strongest convictions and inspirations have come from the times in my life when I suffered. The poet Rilke wrote, What is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. Right in the difficult we must have our joys, our happiness, our dreams. There, against the depth of this background, they stand out. There, for the first time, we see how beautiful they are. In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. Years ago, a minister was giving me advice about speaking from the pulpit. She said, Never forget that there are always people in the congregation whose hearts are breaking. And I come back to my suspicions. A woman we served at our agency for many years had been doing very well, we thought, for a long time. She had suffered most of her life with depression, but with medication and therapy and support in finding and keeping a job, she seemed very steady. She was reporting that she was feeling good that things seemed to be going pretty well for her. It was a shock for us the day we learned that she had gone to a park by the river, asked a stranger on the walkway to help her tighten her waist pack, and then walked to the middle of the pedestrian bridge and jumped off into the swollen Ohio River. What would the resiliency experts say? That author, Al Siebert, has a formula, and I find formulas really appealing. So let me share with you what he calls the five levels of resiliency. One, maintaining your emotional stability, health, and well-being. Two, focus outward, good problem-solving skills. Three, focus inward, strong inner selves. Four, well-developed resiliency skills. And five, the talent for serendipity. The first level is focused on sustaining your health and your energy, 
The second level focuses outward on the challenges that must be handled. It is based on research findings that problem-focused coping leads to resiliency better than emotion-focused coping. The third level focuses inward on the roots of resiliency, strong self-esteem, self-confidence, and a positive self-concept. The fourth level covers the attributes and skills found in highly resilient people. And the fifth level describes what is possible at the highest level of resiliency. It is the talent for serendipity, the ability to convert day-to-day events into good fortune. The levels might be described this way. You learn to take good care of yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. You eat right. You get your exercise. You do all those things we know we need to do. You stay active and connected, and you figure out your take on God or a higher power. Then you learn how to solve problems. You get support for linking with the right resources, the right information. You learn how to examine the pros and cons involved in a major decision. Then you find a way to focus inside, and you figure out how to really love and trust what's there. And when it all comes together, your life moves along in inexplicably lucky ways. It's good advice, and on the surface it sounds straightforward, but in my own life and in my experiences with most people I know, it seems to me that our journeys toward resiliency are not linear. Most of us have various pieces of each of those levels figured out, but there are these sticky points. For me, there are struggles even with level one. How many of us take great care of ourselves? And what does that say about us? Somewhere in that limbo between what we know and what we do lie mysterious combinations of habit and denial that conspire within us, and we work against ourselves. Overeating, eating junk food, smoking, avoiding exercise. And level three, the development of self-esteem and self-confidence It doesn't take an Oprah article to know we struggle with this in our culture. Is it our Puritan roots? Some underlying theme of original sin? I think about the Saturday Night Live sketches of Wayne's World, where one of the characters, Garth, would respond to the presence of a famous guest by saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. How do we move beyond negative messages we may have internalized as small children? I work with many people who heard intensely hateful messages about themselves as children. And they went on to subconsciously seek out environments where they received those same messages since it felt so familiar. How is that cycle ever broken? For Christians, the answer can be the powerful promise of Jesus' unconditional love and forgiveness. I've seen people's belief in this serve as the seed for their first feelings of self-worth. Other religions hold answers as well. One of the most powerful opening prayers I ever heard was at the annual meeting of the Cincinnati Area Inclusion Network, the group that works to increase accessibility for people with all types of disability. The Great Hall was full of one of the most diverse groups of people I have ever seen, So many shapes, many with wheelchairs or walkers, 
many with bodies very, very different from my own. And the rabbi who gave the opening prayer began with, God, we look to you and your perfection, and you remind us that you made all of us in your image. For those who believe in a God who created humankind in God's image, what a powerful message, what a powerful experience to hold that belief and to look into the mirror, to look into your heart. Our own religion's very first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Whatever the answers may be for a person, they don't generally pop into that person's head on their own. The idea must come from somewhere, some memory or mentor, some message from outside. We, each one of us, may be the messenger when we least understand that we are giving a message. I was in contact recently with a former professor of mine, and I told him my favorite memory from one of his classes. I keep a book in which I write down quotes I overhear which seem significant to me. And way back in 1983, I had written this quote from him, which he said during a lecture on chemistry. In reality, there are no fixed double bonds. It was one of those spooky, jarring, double entendres at a time in my life filled with relationship melodrama. You never know what effect your words might have. But I try to pay attention now. Recently, the clients in one of our day programs were mourning the loss of one of their friends, and they asked me to do a short memorial for her. Most of our clients in the day program attend our program for about two years. They usually come two to four times a week. They get to know each other pretty well. And the circumstances of this death had been particularly troubling. The woman had been found in her apartment after being dead at least four or five days. Many felt guilty for not noticing her absence right away and doing more to contact her. Many felt fear about our own isolation. Would someone notice if we were gone? And we all missed her. I don't know if I can explain the power among all of us gathered in that room as we shared our memories of this woman and as I invited everyone to bow our heads together. These are the words I shared at the end of the memorial. Now, in the spirit of prayer or meditation, Let's bow our heads. We are thankful to have known our friend. We are thankful to be reminded of the preciousness of each day, the wonder of our connection with each person we meet. Please help us to be emboldened and inspired by her life. Help us to be strong so that each of us may be an instrument of peace and comfort. And then I invited everyone to share silence together to reflect on our feelings and our memories. Afterward, a man I did not know came to talk to me, and he asked why we couldn't do something like that more often, because he said he felt so good afterward. It reminded me of my own experience of sharing silence here at St. John's, the power I feel sometimes as we sit together and listen and focus. It's so different than being silent by myself. 
And that is the necessary clarification, the key regarding resiliency, regarding the question of whether we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or rely on a system or a government to pull us up. I believe it's just never that simple. And that's a difficult thing to swallow because we are a culture, by and large, that likes things to be simple, to be quick, to be clear. I may become more resilient, but my journey toward resilience is fueled by my family, my friends, my community. I work with people who want to become more resilient, but who face additional obstacles when they can't obtain medications or housing or childcare or food. I agree with Barack Obama that no one expects the government or any other institution to solve their problems, but we sense that just a slight change in priorities can make all the difference in the world. In the book, The Secret Life of Bees, the main character, a 13-year-old named Lily, has captured a couple of bees in a jar. Later, she feels guilty about this and opens the jar, but the bees remain there as if they don't realize the jar is open and they are free to go. She leaves the open jar by her bed and a couple of days later sees that they have gone. Lily is facing terrible challenges, but she's not alone. She has Rosaline who loves her and she has a connection with her mother. I think it is these connections that help her to hear the message from the intricately connected community of bees. One morning she realizes, Lily, your jar is open and she leaves an abusive home. We gather together to be reminded that we are part of a larger community. We are connected, each of us, to one another. We are part of an intricate web, and our choices impact one another. We have the power to provide the seeds of resiliency for someone ready to begin that journey. We can reach out to this community at times when we need that seed, that spark to be rekindled again inside our own hearts. For all of us who face challenges, for all of us whose hearts are breaking, for all of us feeling held back somehow in our lives, whether we call it resiliency or by some other name, we are stronger than we know. We are not alone. Life is asking us a question and the jar is open. Amen. You can find more Preacher Girl episodes through iTunes or on the Preacher Girl website at preachergirl.podbean.com. Many thanks to singer-songwriter Stephen Grant Smith for his musical contributions. You can find more of his music on iTunes or on cdbaby.com or amazon.com. This is Diane Wright thanking you for tuning in to the Preacher Girl podcast. And as always, feed your spirit, live in love.